What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Tahab Reyes here today. Tahab is the Chief Strategy Officer at Publicis Group of Minat. Now, Tahab, we've got to start there. We're going to be talking about winning awards and we're going to talk about a specific award case study for Emirates NBD, the James Jefferson campaign that's been winning a bunch of awards. But until you explain to me Menat or Minat, I thought it was an agency name. What is it? <laughs> uh, so Minat is the region of Middle East, North Africa and Turkey. Three very distinctive markets. Should I be embarrassed for not knowing that? Uh, it's fine. A lot of people ask me the same question. It's all right. <laughs> Gosh, I thought it was like some agency that Publicis had just acquired. It does, right? It could. It, it sound given that all agencies have acronym these days. It could very well be. Oh, gosh. Now, Tab, you've won over 750 regional and global awards across Cannes, One Show, D&AD, the J. Chiats, the Andes, the Clios, the New York Festivals, Walk, the Lowry's, Dubai Links. How do you find time to actually do any work in between winning all the awards? Don't sleep, don't have a life. No, I'm just kidding, man. What really helps Mark is A, having a brilliant team that shares the same hunger and perseverance to create great work. And second is making sure uh, that every single brief that we work on, on every single client is seen as an opportunity to do good work and to do work that makes a difference either to people and to business and hopefully to culture as well. So it's something we really practice as a ritual within our agencies. Any brief that comes in, how can we make this something that is effective, that is meaningful, and that therefore wins a lot of fame. And the more you do that as a practice, the more work you churn out. And the more work you churn out, the more chances are that our work will travel, that work will be effective. And therefore, you know, you have a lot of award entries. And that's how we end up converting. So yeah. it's not rocket science. It's just, you know, simple practice and behavior change that we've implemented. Yeah, you can say it's not rocket science, but those three things together are actually super rare. I mean, those three things literally, because otherwise you wouldn't have won so many awards. Those things are very rare. And for me, there are three things in there. I think you put them into two buckets, but I think there's three. The first one is to work with exceptional people. You can't turn up being a decent to good to excellent strategist and be feeding creative teams who are not conceptually trained or who don't have high expectations, right? And it's just something that we don't often talk about. And the thing is, in some countries, some regions, some of us move between agencies and we don't realize that until we try a couple of agencies and we're like, oh, that one I had two agencies ago, they were really good. And that's why we kept winning awards and kept doing such good work. But that's something that is really important and often taken. It's not that it's taken for granted. It's just not explicit. But if you want to do good work, go to where good work is happening because there are exceptional people there. Fair statement, right? Now, you've worked in a few places in your region, which are very award winning. It's not just you randomly coming across a good creative team for a few years or a good creative department for a few years. There's something going on in the region that you've been based out of, isn't there? I think the region by nature is not a region that people expect great work to come out from. It's the Middle East, it's North Africa, it's Turkey, you know, it's not seen as the most progressive region in terms of its culture, in terms of its talents, in terms of the brands. But the fact is that because it's such a culturally driven region, because there are such young talents that are coming up, both locally grown as well as expatriate, everyone's coming here to prove a point, Mark. And when you are the underdog, you know, you want to constantly be better and you constantly want to compete with yourself, not just with the big players. So you've seen that increasingly over the last five or six years, particularly in the Middle East, where we've seen a lot of oomph being put into the work that we're creating. And a lot of spark that is coming in in terms of the insights we're tapping into. 
in terms of the scale of the work, in terms of how global the work is traveling. You have brands out here and you have agencies out here, not just our agency, but even other agencies who are creating work from the Middle East that is going global. And that is encouraging more people to you know, create that kind of work. So there's a good bunch of talents across agencies, not just ours, who share that same hunger and perseverance that we've been practicing. Together, we're lifting the region up. Thankfully, it's high time. So that's going to be the second point. I'm going to save my other two points from paraphrasing. I want to build out a list because I'm using you to get to a listicle to help other people who want to do good work, who are frustrated, who maybe are running into walls all the time. I want to help them understand what's going on. So point two to winning awards, and we'll talk about the value of awards in a second, is I love that phrase, everyone is here to prove a point. When I first moved to New York, I worked in, at Saatchi and Saatchi, and I came across a few people who seemed to be there largely just for the salary and just for healthcare. I can't say the word just in a way to patronize because those things are super important and healthcare in the US is very complicated. But after a few interactions, I realized that we weren't there to do exceptional work. They were there to last. And as soon as I realized that, the, ener- the creative energy just drained from me. And I realized that in Leo Burnett in Sydney and McCann in Sydney and the other agencies, Tribal EDB, that everyone was there to prove a point. We had that Aussie chip on our shoulders that i think is taken for granted in some of the major cities around the world, in the US especially, but then also some of these other countries put different pressures on people, which make it hard to really value anything more than survival, right? So everyone is here to prove a point. Why do you think that region, which for some of us who've not visited and some of us who are from the outside, seems like it's a very hierarchical, conservative region, why is it attracting creative people who want to make a point? Because I don't think it would be unreasonable to suggest that creative people wanting to make a point in what is considered by many, not judging, but by many a conservative, hierarchical, authoritarian region. How does that work? How does it happen? How has it happened? The media paints a certain picture at times, but the reality is very different. If you look at the region and the kind of leadership that the region has right now, every market in this region is trying to be the best they can be on a global stage. You look at Saudi Arabia, you look at a UAE. The progress that's happening, the developments that are happening, the kind of vision that the new leadership across you know, Saudi Arabia, the leadership across UAE is pushing forward, their plans for the future, their plans for their countrymen, their plans for us as expatriates living in these markets are amazing. They're ambitious and they're not just blindly ambitious, right? They've got a certain strategy to make those come to life. So it is a very progressive place and it's a very ambitious place. And that is attracting the talents that are being attracted right now. You have a country, you have a region, depending where you're based, that wants to do things that are not considered possible by the rest of the world. You know, you look at all the real estate developments, you look at all the scientific developments, like the UAE sent a probe to Mars, you know, becoming the first Arab country to do so last year. There's a lot happening here in terms of innovation, in terms of creativity, in terms of growth, in terms of even the culture itself. You're seeing so much, so many artists that are emerging from the region, so many filmmakers that are emerging from the region. So it is a very, very creatively driven, mm. innovation-hungry culture. And when you build that as a nation, as a country, you attract the right kind of people. And hence, the brands in the region are also sharing the same ambition. And that is cascading down to the agencies and the creatives across the region as well. Everyone's buying into this overall countries and regions narrative that's pushing creativity forward. That was going to be my next question, because it's all very well to have somehow acquired exceptional people and to have built a culture that's attracting people who want to make a point, but then there's the client reality. Exactly. Clients are naturally going to be more conservative than agency people. You could probably do some kind of psych profiling to prove that. I'm sure there's some data out there. But you're saying that a lot of the clients 
in the region, not just the ones that are attracted to you, but a lot of the clients in the region are also creatively minded, creatively literate and ambitious. Is that right? 100%. I'll give you an example of one client. We work with that client works with several other agencies as well. It's the UAE government media office. They're responsible for the media relationships and the communication about the country to the world. This client last night at the FEs won the marketer of the year. It's a government brand doing amazing work, winning nine or 10 gold FEs and like God knows how many silver and bronze FEs, being on stage, winning the Grand Prix at the FEs. And it's a UA government brand winning it. So you can see the kind of trendsetters we've got in the region and they're setting the benchmark for other clients. I wouldn't say conservative, Mark, because everyone has a family to look after, right? Everyone's got mortgages to pay. So we have to be conscious that sometimes our clients have their own challenges as well. We just have to see, work with the kind of clients that have the brevity to do brave work, do that kind of work for them, but also for the ones who are considered conservative. There's a lot that can be done with them as well, as long as you're meaningful and as long as you understand what the business needs. Sometimes I think our, our breed of creatives tends to get a little bit too creative for the sake of creativity. Mm. We also have to balance that out a little bit more when it comes to certain brands that need that kind of a balance in the approaches we take. When I talk about the region, I'm really talking about where you're specifically based. You're in the UAE, right? Yeah, in the UAE. But I, the, thing, the fun thing about the role is I get, I get to look after the whole region. So, you know, you talk to everyone and you work with everyone across markets. You were sort of touching on this, but I'm going to put it in. I don't mean these words in, any, in an offensive, stereotypical way, but so much of that region, we just hear these stories that something amazing was built from nothing in the middle of sand. Is that the mindset that leads to creative ambition beyond just the people who already have the money and who are building buildings? No, that's that's definitely a mindset beyond the money, Mark. There's definitely a mindset. There's a mindset that we will make things happen. We will prove ourselves, you know, not just to the world, but even to ourselves that we are capable of it. So I think that helps because in restrictions, you know, is when creativity really thrives. Amidst negative perceptions is when creativity should thrive. And if you look at the way the countries are built out here, similar to brands as well, brands face restrictions every day. Brands, you know, have lack of budgets at times. Brands, you know, have mundanity that they need to deal with. These are all problems that brands face with the country has faced as well. And it's how you hack those challenges. How do you hack those restrictions? How do you still push yourselves to try and compete, you know, with the world when it comes to building stuff? I think that's been echoed in the work that's coming out of brands in the region. Help me wrestle with this, though, because I've had friends, like really close friends who spent years. I have one who lives in the UAE. I've had friends work over there. And just in case people are listening to this, like thinking I'm going to talk about a white Western perspective, my friends, they're not white. Okay. But they've lived there and they struggled with a couple of things. One is that in the workforces, they were in professional workforces. A lot of sort of the up and coming people in middle management, they felt were born into so much wealth that they just didn't work hard. That was something that I heard. And then also some of these regions, I'm not judging it. I just want your take on this. I want you to argue back at these things through me. But some of these regions and Singapore as well, at times have had reputations for it's a place that someone will go to from another country when they're sort of tapping out from their own country. I'm sure Australia's had that reputation as far as England to Australia migration goes as well. What's your reaction to that? From what I've met in my 15 years in this region, I've not seen that happen. I've seen people who've been extremely hardworking. Even the ones who are, you know, born and bred in this region, they clock early in the morning to the office. They clock out late. You know, they're working their backsides off in terms of creating work that's, you know, interesting, both in our field as well as outside our field. So I've personally not experienced that. All right. So we've got to award winning or award-worthy work. You need to work with exceptional people Mm -hmm. to... People who were there to prove a point, 
Yeah. You have some kind of oomph. You need ambitious clients, clients who are potentially used to building something incredible from nothing. Now, the fourth thing I want to get into is you, you use the word fame. So there's a philosophy that guides you personally with what you do and, and probably a lot of the creative teams and the agencies that you've worked with. Talk to me about why fame is important as something to strive for with advertising. I think there's been enough research done around the world. I'm going to talk from two perspectives, one is the academic perspective and then the human perspective. Academically, I'm sure you've come across this mark as well. There's a lot of correlation between work that's fame-worthy and business results. Mm-hmm. Brands that are famous, products that are famous, you know, lead to better usage, lead to better perceptions, lead to better awareness, and all the different metrics that brands and businesses need to achieve. That's why fame matters when it comes to your key performance indicators. When it comes to the human front, it's very important that we as uh, creative folks in the creative industry find purpose in our work. And finding purpose in our work means doing work that reaches people, doing work that gets talked about on media platforms, doing work that we feel proud sharing with our family. So the one thing I always tell my teams is that this brief that you have, you've got this brief you're looking at. What comes out of this brief? Will you be proud to share with your mom? or your partner, or your kids? Will it be something you'll go home when it launches and go, hey, look, I made this? If not, it's probably not worth it. Yeah. That again, for me, is a very important, it's a simple philosophy, but it's an important philosophy going back to the point I mentioned, which is making every single brief an opportunity. I want to talk about that as a separate point. I just wanted to allow you to talk a bit more about fame. And it's with this context, right? Because I'm in the US and I'm going to do some comparison. When I was in Australia, Australia is 24 million people in a country the size of almost the US. It was not impossible to think that you could come up with a campaign that might get national attention, small national attention, attention the size of a state in the US. In the US, everything's so factional, everything's so divided. The idea of getting national attention or national fame, super hard, unless back in the day, you know, you got on the homepage of a YouTube or you got reddited or buzzfeeded or digged or stumble upon or something. But it's so factional here. It's hard to feel that sense of fame. And in a lot of the places I've worked at, it wasn't a thing you strive for as you did back here. What I'm wondering is whether the dynamics in the very big region that you're in, where there's more of a center of gravity in each of the countries, so that the idea of getting national attention, becoming nationally or internationally famous seems more possible and more something that you would talk about. I think when you look at brands and you look at, you know, agencies these days, there's a lot of attention on the work that's coming out, both from the region as well as from outside the region. And therein lies an opportunity for us to create work that travels. One trick, you know, we deployed back at my earlier workplace at McCann was having a box in your brief, in your creative brief itself, which is what would the media say about this idea? And when you have that in your brief, you know, it's something a lot of people do, but we didn't do that a lot. So we started adding that in. And that made us think at the start of the briefing, what objective do we want to achieve with media? So it's not just fame for the sake of fame, right? It's fame that does the job. If you're talking about domestic workers, you know, or you're talking about blue-collared workers, or you're talking about children who are with special needs, children who are, you know, children of determination, as we call them here. Those are social causes. What's the kind of media awareness you need for the social causes? It's very different from when you're selling a home loan or from when you're selling a personal loan. So you have to be very smart and very targeted with how you're looking at making those topics or those products or those brands popular and more talked about. It's not just, you know, fame for the sake of fame. You have to think about the kind of fame that you want, both internationally and regionally as well. Yeah, too, I'm just using you to make reflections and to write a list. Honestly, that's what's going on. I'm, I'm slightly joking, but I'm not. But like two reflections on the PR thing. First of all, a lot of ad agencies have won a lot of PR awards and PR agencies hate it. 
right? And they hate it when an, an advertising agency is in a workshop with them and is trying to get the PR firm to promote or to publicize the campaign idea because what they want to do is publicize the brand and the client. I've seen that dynamic so many, many times. The second thing is this concept of earned media. You know, Crispin Porter obviously were probably the darling of getting media attention and really cementing this thinking in people's minds because they sort of popped up and uh, from what I understand, when they reviewed work, they wanted to understand what the press release headline would be to see if there was an idea, first of all, and to see if there was some kind of talk worthiness with that idea. And that must be over 20 years ago when that became a thing. But ironically, I worked in PR briefly and earned media when I was there was trying to get words from your press release into an article in the New York Times. And it was completely different understanding from the tens and tens of people that I worked with. I'm not making it up. That's literally what I thought it was. And I would show work like Leo Burnett's Earth Hour, get the world to turn its lights off for an hour for WWF. And they're like, oh, that's like a Droga 5 idea. It really confused me. So I want to talk a bit more about that, like ideas that the media might talk about. How do you know? Have you worked in the media? Do you just have a sense for it? How is that box useful and used? The way that box actually came about, Mark, was looking at work around the world that has done two things. One is impacted culture and two, impacted the brand or the business and deconstructing that work. So it's something I used to do as a very young strategist when I just started off at 24, 25. That's to look at this work and I used to be like, okay, what would the media talk about this idea? I've seen this idea. What was the brief? What would they have thought about? As a communications firm, whether it's PR, whether it's creative, doesn't matter, right? We're all creating ideas that we want people to talk about or we want people to pay attention to and interact with. That helps is trying to look at a bunch of work that's gone live, that has been effective in the real world and deconstructing it to try and find what their objective was from a media perspective, because that helps you craft a lot of headlines. Reading a lot of the way journalists write the headlines helps as well, because you see the kind of story tangents and the story angles they take. It again comes back to the point around, you know, comms planning, what we call comms planning or connections planning or channel planning, call it what you want, is that PR is an integral part of it. It has to feature in every single brief that you put out there to your creative teams. And not just to your creative teams, even to your partners in PR firm. So it's not just giving them a film to promote, right? Get them in at the creative briefing stage. Tell them that this is a job that we need PR to do. This is the kind of things we want to create when it comes to PR, when it comes to awareness, when it comes to buzz. How can you help us? And a lot of agencies, to your point, don't really do that, which is where the secret lies is that, you know, you have a brief, it goes to a creative team, they come up with a film, a manifesto, a key visual, a social activation, usual stuff. Ideas cracked. Okay, now let's brief PR to make this popular. No, it doesn't really work. Get them involved at the briefing stage. Get them involved in the connections plan because heck, they can come up with ideas. We are launching an initiative next week. In fact, I hope it goes live on next Friday. Can't reveal what it's for, unfortunately. But the PR agency has been involved since the time we cracked the strategy. They've been there since then. And they've been giving us ideas all along that have helped the creative process in how we roll this initiative out and when we roll this initiative out. That's where, you know, I feel there's an opportunity there to integrate them at the time of the brief, really create the kind of headlines that you would want people to talk about when it comes to your idea initiative. And for anyone who's interested in ground floor understanding of public relations, read Edward Bernays' book, Crystallizing Public Opinion, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S, Sigmund Freud's nephew, kind of known as the godfather of public relations. There's this quote where he's like, we we're going to call it propaganda, but propaganda got a bad rap in World War II. And that's in Adam Curtis's documentary, The Century of Self, which is free on YouTube, three hours or so. Watch it all. Okay. Point six is what you said, 
around make sure every brief is seen as an opportunity to do good work. Why does that matter? It matters on two fronts. One is we are giving every paying client of ours the respect they deserve. Yes, sometimes there is a paucity of time. Yes, sometimes, you know, you don't have, you say, just 24 hours. Sometimes the client wants in a rush. But I've seen briefs and I've been part of briefs that have come in as a purely tactical piece where they want, let's say, a print ad mark. <laughs> hey, we need a print ad by tomorrow. But because we've seen potential in that brief, we've given them the print ad they wanted tomorrow. But we've pushed that a lot more into something that became a year-long initiative. So you've got to give each client the respect it deserves, each brief the respect it deserves. Because in those briefs, yes, you have to do the stuff that you have to deliver, the stuff that pays our salaries. But there also could be interesting bits in there that you can really leverage to build something meaningful, to build something that you will be proud of. The second thing is it also gives you as a brief writer, whether you're an account person, whether you're a strategist, whether you're anyone else who's writing a brief, it also gives you, honestly, is the best part of your job. It's the most fun part of your job, writing a brief. So look at it with excitement because this is where you get to create stuff. In my first job, on my second day as a junior account executive, that's as low as the titles go, right? In an agency, someone once told me, he's like, your brief is the first idea. And I was like, damn, he gave me one more bit of advice, which is you'll never have time. You need to make time, which goes back to the point you raised about awards. But I love what he said. He's like, you know, your brief is your first idea. And to a young junior account exec of 20 years old, I was like, sheesh, man. I'm like, this is amazing. It's actually true. Hmm. While he just tried to encourage me, that actually works. Because if you make your brief freaking awesome, you know, the work ends up most of the time being pretty awesome too. Yeah. And that's what we try and tell our guys is that, you know, our guys on our, on our team, everyone across the board is that, you know, make your briefs awesome. This is your chance to really contribute actively to the creative process. To that point, it's an example of having a process goal rather than outcome goal. So the process is I'm going to turn up and write a good brief or help the team get to a good brief. Outcome goal would be I'm going to win an award. But if you focus on the process as close to sanity as you're probably going to get. Exactly. What if you feel that you're in an agency that's just not had a great run? You feel that you're on a client that's not done good work in a year, two years, and maybe the client in the agency has got a reputation for being not very ambitious. Can you still believe that? We've been through that. The trick behind such clients is, you know, everyone's got their own challenges. Understand why. Because no one doesn't want to create great work, Mark. No, no one wants to be ordinary. No one. I'm not anyone who wants to just create work and just go home and, you know, clock out for the day. You've got to find the motivator. Yeah. Some get motivated by fame. Some get motivated by, you know, business results. Some get motivated by how they look internally within the organization. So you've got to find that trigger and you've got to find what's stopping them from doing that. It's like talking to a consumer. It's selling a product to a consumer. You're selling creativity. You're selling amazing work to a consumer who probably doesn't want to buy it or doesn't know the value of your product in their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's the same approach you take to selling a product or a brand that you need to sell when it comes to creativity and ideas to a client. So you can definitely push them. We've pushed the ones who were probably not seen as the most creative. Like, let's say a bank or, you know, a government office. You've pushed them to being seen as marketers of the year. Ah, oh, smart person. Hey. Pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. There's one thing that a lot of us might have taken for granted at some point, and I'm curious to what degree you've seen it in the agencies you've worked in, and that is leadership of the agency that's not directly involved with the ideas, their willingness to fight 
for their team's ideas versus them maybe a little meet and greet, little handshake with the client, and then they're just back at the office. Have you worked with much leadership that's gone in and fought like for specific campaigns? Always. I think I've been lucky, at least in my last two gigs at McCann as well as Triton and Publicis Group. We've had leaders who actually fought with their work because they understand that creativity is the one way to thrive in today's world. And creativity is what people value, you know, regardless of what you're creating, whether it's a digital transformation solution, whether it's a film, whether it's a social campaign, whether it's a print ad, right? Creativity helps, helps brands thrive. So that matters a hell of a lot. It's so important. Not just with clients, but even internally, because a lot of people say we support creativity. But when it comes to the day-to-day, you need to also help your teams get the time for creativity yeah. and get the time to think. All these leaders have PL pressures, they have financial pressures, which is the norm of today's world. You know, that's where the good ones stand apart. In that, they find the way to tell their teams, it's okay. You know, I'll give you the time you need to think creatively. I'll give you the one month you need to make amazing things happen. Go and focus on that. I'll take care of everyone else. We'll get people to help you out. And we are very lucky in both my past jobs to have had leaders, CEOs, you know, who support this kind of work. And look, we're all flawed, but having leaders who love ideas, who will get on the phone or go meet a client to encourage them to buy an idea or have breakfast before a pitch or something, it's not as common as, as you would think. Are there any other elements that we haven't touched on that you think have helped you all do such good work or you specifically to contribute to such good work for such a long time? There are two points. One is being extremely passionate and hungry, no matter you know how high or how wide you climb in the corporate ladder. The moment you lose that passion and enthusiasm for what we do, this field is brutal, Mark. You know that. <laughs> it's, it's not an easy field to be a part of in terms of timelines, in terms of the sacrifices you have to make, in terms of the pressures that people face. The moment you lose that passion and enthusiasm, it almost kills a part of you and a very important part of you, which is creativity. So that's one thing I would, you know, I think has worked for us personally when we've done well, as well as for me on, a, on an individual level. You'll see me at, you know, two o'clock in the night as enthusiastic as I am at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, when we're sitting and doing stuff that, you know, give, gives us the kick when it comes to creating work. The second thing would actually be forming great partnerships internally as well as externally. Internally, you need to have your triumvirates strong. You know, strategy, creative, and what people call account management, we call it business consultancy within our group. That triumvirate has to be extremely strong. And every strategist needs to form the triumvirate for their brands or for their agencies or for their companies. When you have that well-engineered and well-oiled, that's when I'm honestly seeing the magic happen. When there have been broken links, you have struggled. Yes, magic has happened, but I've personally struggled in my life as well. It's happened. You know, once everything's rosy, right? It never is. You've struggled at times. And that's when you have to push the extra effort to make things happen, which should not be a fight you need to fight. When you're fighting 10 other fights, you know, to make good work happen. So those are two bits I feel that, you know, have worked as well and that have been challenging at times to do. What are the power dynamics in that triumvirate? You know, some of the New York agencies, there are really famous digital agencies that are known for being producer-led, so everything has to be done on time. The strategists are treated as like deliverable factories. Other large agencies here are known as being account management-led. Whatever they say goes, there's a handful that are creatively led. There aren't that many that are strategy-led, and then a lot of people are sort of moving in and out of PR-type agencies, and they're super individualistic, where often the PR teams will treat everybody else other than them as internal service providers, little access to clients, little say in ideas. It's not that it's always like that, but the majority of what I've seen, and I've seen many, it's not judging it, I've seen many, the power dynamics here are not always, they don't always feel like a triumvirate. They can feel individualistic, and then other parts of the agency are treated as internal service providers. What are the dynamics? You know, like, if there was a strategy meeting, you'd be invited. You'd expect to be invited. And if someone didn't invite you, they'd probably get in trouble, for example, right? I think, look, we're in the business of relationships and people. And, you know, you've got to form those 
friendships with the triumvirates. It's not just a working thing. Yeah. And it really helps. When you, when you know the people well, it helps. When you're friends with them, it makes a massive difference because you can just go and casually have a chat. You don't need those formal teams invites or formal calendar outlook, outlook meetings to set these sessions up, right? You've got to learn to connect with people. That's not just a core skill. It's a mandate that someone working in today's world, in this field of ours, if you're not able to connect with people, it's going to be a challenge for you to do the kind of work that you need to do. So either you're going to be, you know, like you're saying, missed out for a meeting and you have to show up and go like, hey, why am I not, why am I not invited? Famous saying, right? You don't uh, demand respect, you earn it. You know, so you've got to earn that respect. You've got to earn that trust. You've got to, you can't demand it. The more you form stronger relationships with your teams, with your people, it's not just going out for drinks and, you know, going out for like Friday evenings or going for lunches together. It's just showing that I'm here to help us do better. And when people do that, you have an honest conversation, you have honest fights, you have honest arguments, but talk to each other, you know, try and find that common ground. I know it's easier said than done. It's not been perfect for me. But when you find that, hang on to that. Make sure that really, really works. I love it. So I'm going to repeat the ingredients that I've heard that tend to lead to award-worthy work. Work with exceptional people, number one. Two, work with people who are there to prove a point. Three, ambitious clients. Four, a philosophy of fame, launching ideas that achieve fame. Five, thinking about what the media would say about the ideas and coming up with ideas that are media worthy. Six, make sure every brief is seen as an opportunity to do good work. Seven, leadership that is idea literate, idea loving, and that will fight for ideas. Eight, passion and hunger. Kind of goes back to point two around everyone's there to prove a point, but still have something to achieve, still have something to, to prove even as you age and become more senior and then great partnerships invest in the internal relationships in that triumvirate between account planning, creative department or creative team and account management. All right. Obviously, there's a ton of stuff we could talk about as far as award entries and maybe we could do another podcast about that. I want to talk to you about the awards you've won. What was your first award? The first award was a silver FE for HSBC. Back in 2012, 2011, in fact, yeah, 2011, HSBC, a sale. It was the HSBC sale. Yes, a silver FE. That was the first one, yeah. What was the key thought or the key set of decisions that you believe led to it being able to win an FE? I think the strategy behind it was very interesting. When was the last time a bank went on a sale? Was the provocation that we had for HSBC because they wanted to promote their products individually. We wanted to make it something that was exciting for people. Given that the region, you know, the Middle East, one perception is that it's always on sale, right? So it's a shopping festival, year-long shopping festival. Everything's on sale and people love a sale. So that was a provocation strategically. What if a bank went on sale? And that was exciting, you know, as a young strategist to work on that, to come up with that, to work with creative teams and bringing that to life. When you look back on it, obviously it looks very old-fashioned, but hey, it was 2011. We allowed that. If we did that today, we'd do it very differently. But that could still work today as well. Most meaningful award? There was one piece of work we had done for blue-collared workers in the UAE to help them with their children's education. It was a small activation. It wasn't like a massive thing that, you know, changed the region or changed perceptions or changed the world. There was something small that we did. It was basically for a wall. There was a wall that was created in a hotspot in Dubai. The wall basically had invited each people to come up to the wall and put in nails into the wall. And you buy one nail for 10 dirhams. Yeah, just those nails. You come knock nails onto a wall. And as you knock the nails into specified areas on the wall, it formed an art piece of a child reaching out for a graduation hat. 
and each nail costs like 10 dirhams which is like 3 dollars whereas typically it costs nothing and people paid 100 dirhams which is like you know 30 dollars per nail one person paid around 150 dollars per nail so the amount of money you collected all that money went to help those kids education and what was meaningful about it was we actually spent time with them understanding their personal stories so it was very human to me as an experience and very humbling for me and secondly when we were there we actually had blue collared workers come and put nails in and contribute to the cause as well i've got photographs of that you had policemen come and contribute you had the entire community come and contribute for a simple small wall okay let's chat the campaign that you and your crew your team and your clients have been winning awards for emirates nbd which is a bank the campaign's called james jefferson a fraudster created by a bank to reduce financial fraud and the setting or the environment into which this campaign was launched was during the pandemic phishing attacks ph rose by an alarming 250% in the uae during the pandemic it's won gold in connection strategy at the j chart awards in 2022 and also gold for the regional work it's super creative great storytelling and it revolves around this character james jefferson who's an author an artist and an actor who's spruiking his new book how to grow rich during the pandemic What I love to hear about is like what was the contribution of strategy slash strategists yeah. to this work. Emirates NBD, which is the bank, is a bank that we have worked with for quite a few years. We're very familiar with them. So when they came up with the brief around, you know, we need to do something regarding anti-fraud and anti-phishing, and we need to help people with this problem that's happening. What we did basically is that we started thinking about. what can we do that has not been done before so first the entire first thing that we did was research research the hell out of everything that's happening happened in the world when it comes to this topic so we are distinctive we don't do what someone else has done you know even though and we've taken some good learnings from a lot of good work that's out there the second thing we did was speak to people you know who have been scammed and often times we tend to be so reliant on google <laughs> and shortcut desktop researchers that we lose the essence of what strategy was all about you know when stephen king wrote about going out and meeting people and going and talking to people in the real world we've lost that art so i think that helped a lot in terms of going out there speaking to people understanding how they were scammed understanding why they were scammed understanding where they were scammed that really helped a lot that gave us insights into the human uh, issue that we were facing is that people don't know how to protect themselves from fraud because they don't know the tricks that fraudsters use that gave rise to the creative idea is it fine let's just create a fraudster let's teach people how fraudsters work let's teach them the inner workings of a fraudster when that became the brief and that became the premise of the brief the idea you know naturally took a life of its own from there where they actually created a fraudster and then of course we had a very well thought of plan to bring it to life the issue is that people don't know how to protect themselves because they don't know the tricks of the fraudsters is that a problem to solve is it an insight is it the creative springboard what's the language the jargon that you would use to describe that as a sentence i call it a springboard i think to keep it simple i'm not a fan of jargon so it's a springboard let's call it that for lack of any other word right because people call it provocation people call it proposition people call it springboard i really don't believe in a brief as a piece of document and i love keeping briefs fluid so the one thing we worked on here as a model of briefing is what we call revelation and provocation as simple as that so it's not about insights it's not about truths you know it's anything that's surprising anything that's revelatory anything that's new that no one's heard before give that with a provocation which provokes you to think a bit differently that's your brief 
Edward de Bono would be proud. Edward de Bono propagated the use of the phrase lateral thinking to help understand ideas and creativity, but he used to also talk a lot about Poe or provocation. And hearing the connection between that issue, it doesn't even matter what it's called, but the issue, people don't know how to protect themselves because they don't know the tricks fraudsters use. And obviously, that's costing the bank time and money because they're having to deal with people who are losing money and maybe decrease trust. So there's a business cost to them. But that issue, when that, we'll call it issue, problem, whatever it is, is well-defined, it can immediately lead to a creative idea or to a solution in a way that I think a lot of people are suspicious of or they just haven't been through this process enough to realize that sometimes just one thing leads to the thing that's going to be in public. And that's why sometimes I see creative brief templates that might start at two pages, and this is especially outside of agencies, but two-page brief templates filled in to 10 pages with all the information, and there's nothing in them. There's no revelation, no provocation. It's basically an assortment of information. Yeah. At what point in your career did you realize and then become confident and comfortable with the thought that great advertising ideas, campaign ideas can come from a simple sentence? Just one. That's all you need. I think journey started honestly when I joined McCann. When I was 27, 28, you know, came into McCann, there was no strategy team in the agency. I had to set up strategy from scratch because the ones who were the head left. So it was all about how do you do stuff fast? And that's where it honestly came from. It was like, I don't have the time. I've got 10 brands to look after. Do I really need to sit and write a document? Should strategy really be writing a brief? So those all questions I started asking myself. I mean, yes, there's a brief template because the, you need a brief template to have that information for a creative and every agency has that and we respect that. But how can I make my life easier by making the creative's life easier? Because my job was not just, you know, crack a brief and move on. My job was to sit with the creative, make sure we had the best idea. And that's a strategist real win. So that's where it honestly came from. It came from a restriction, going back to the point of finding solutions amidst restrictions, right? Which is about the theme that we started off with. I was like, okay, let me just simplify things. And then again, I go back to what I said earlier. I love deconstructing stuff personally as a strategist. So I love looking at great work. And I'm like, okay, they did this beautiful piece of work. How would I sum it up in one line? The Old Spice thing was honestly one of the key things I deconstructed back then. The man your mind could smell like. I was yeah. like, what could their brief have been? I looked at all the great work out there that has won Grand Prix and FE Grand Prix, etc. And I challenged myself, okay, let me sum it up. So I made like a deck of like 10 or 12 of these campaigns and listed down one line of briefs, two line of briefs, the whole revelation provocation. I didn't call it revelation provocation back then. It was called something else. I don't remember what it was called. But then as you hone your art and as you hone your skill as a strategist, it started getting more sharper and sharper. And then I started taking it to our teams and getting our teams excited and for them to think about the same way. So that's when it honestly started. It came from a place of, shit, I need to do so much work in so little time. Let me make life simpler. Let's be honest, a lot of case studies and award-winning work, it just comes from a simple thought that might have come from a strategist or the strategist might have collected it from the team or it might have come from a creative team in spite of the strategist and the strategy, but then it gets post-rationalized. But everything comes down to, you know, like for Old Spice, they found that women were buying this product for their men or mums for their boys, really, but women for their men. and that sort of led to them creating the man that you wish your man could smell like, which is weird when I say the word mom. Uh, Snickers, you're not you when you're angry. Exactly. I've seen the case study for that. I believe it was in the brief, but also it might have come out of the creative department. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Because this was about reducing fraud, did brand attribution matter? Did Emirates NBD need to get credit for this campaign? 100%. There's a direct link with the brand. So it wasn't like a retailer <laughs> talking about financial fraud. It was a bank. So there was, firstly, the topic could be owned by them. The cause could be owned by them. And secondly, the brand itself is one of the most, one of the most well-reputed and one of the, one of the leading banks in the region. 
And as a leading bank, they focus a lot on community social responsibility and in making sure, you know, people are financially wiser. Financial wellness is a key pillar of their brand strategy overall. So this mattered to them as a brand. Hence, Emirates NBD's role was very, very important. And before this campaign, they'd done one more piece. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It was called It Wasn't Me. Uh, check it out on YouTube if you haven't checked it out. It was a hilarious film. Like, you know, I was jealous. I, I was like, I wish I was the strategist behind this. I mean, it was genius. They took Shaggy's song, It Wasn't Me, and they made it about anti-fraud learnings. And that came from the creative folks, right? They use entertainment, not to teach people about tricks, but to teach people about fraud in general. So the bank had started that conversation. So there was a bit of resonance between Emirates NBD and anti-fraud. It needed to get stronger because no other bank was really talking about it. So yes, it did matter. And then this campaign won a gold for connection strategy at the Jay Chide Awards, as I've now said three times. What was the main piece of thinking in the communications plan or in the connections plan? I think the main idea here was how do you talk to an audience about a topic that is a public service awareness message in, in short? Because everyone was talking about, oh, you're going digital, you know, you're online, stay safe. There's typical social posts, television films that were going live. But people were anxious during the pandemic and just after the pandemic when this was actually created. People were honestly very apathetic towards such kind of work, prosaic, PSA work. There's enough of that, you know. We are in this together. We'll be safe together. And honestly, when was the last time you actually paid attention to your bank? Like your bank really talking to you. Especially when your bank lectures you or preaches to you. So to us, from a connection strategy perspective, the first goal was how do we entertain people while educating them in order to earn their attention? So that was very important. Hence, we created the fictional character, called him something unique and weird, James Jefferson, you know, who did what he did, which was helping people spot frauds to stop frauds. The second thing was, yes, if entertainment was the way in, if that was our connections principle, how do you bring that entertainment to life? Branded content is big here. People love watching branded content series, branded content pieces that are aired by producers versus brands. So how do we create an entertaining branded content platform? that showed the inner workings of Fraudster was the second element that we looked at, which was the how of the connections plan, where we wanted to capture attention, create entertainment, fuel buzz and conversations, you know, reveal the brand's intent as well. And then it got interesting from there. We were like, okay, let's have some fun with this now. Let's reveal this guy and his scheming inner workings in an interesting way. You know, so the first thing we did was capture attention, do something that will get people excited about this character and also a bit pissed off at him, you know, so let's capture it. Let's create this really manipulative guy who feels there's something wrong with this guy. You know it. When you watch the film, you see the Instagram profile, you know, he's not a straight guy. You know, there's something up. And he was inspired from real life uh, fraudsters. You know, our creative team sat and they researched the hell out of fraudsters in the UAE. They found a dude called Hush Puppy, who's currently serving, you know, a lot of sentence in, in your, you know, bless him. So he's actually inspired from Hush Puppy a lot in terms of the shoes, in terms of his Instagram profile. The creators went crazy with it, which was good for us. You know, it showed it was working. The second thing was then, okay, we're showing him. Let's bring him to life in his full glory and full aplomb. You know, let's show his character helping people get rich during the pandemic. Then we started having fun with how he teaches people. What do you do when you teach people? You, you know, Mark, you do a podcast. You do a masterclass. You write a book. This dude did the same thing. <laughs> you know, he wrote a book. He did a masterclass. He did a podcast. You're not a fraud, Mark. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> the third thing was, you know, got him excited. Now let's get buzz and conversations about him. So people started, you know, saying this guy is a fraud. Something's wrong with him. This guy is not straight. That was step number three. So there was a structure behind the thinking. And I think this case enumerates that as well. And the fourth is you reveal his end. So reveal his master plan is that this guy is a fraudster. You show his inner workings through a film. So the film came much later. 
you know, in the process. Film wasn't the first thing we did. It came at number four, probably in the step. Uh, then we had partnerships with Dubai Police, which mattered a lot. We had partnerships with other radio organizations, which helped spread the message out. And finally, fifth was once he's arrested, you know, he started doing FAQs, which was, you know, fraudster answers questions. We had like live game shows, which educated people through an interactive manner, how to learn about fraud. So we kept that conversation going on. It sounds just like a really well thought through campaign, four act communications structure. Final question. Mm. Why should we value awards? Why we should value awards? I think awards are obviously debated <laughs> everywhere. Are they really something that the industry needs to pay attention to? It comes down to how we use awards and what awards we actually value and what kind of award-winning work do we value. To me, awards are precious on two fronts. One is it just gives people a sense of achievement in their lives. Everyone's facing some kind of struggles in their lives. When they win an award, it just makes them feel good about themselves. So on a human level, to me, that matters. When we see young people who we know are having issues in their personal life, go on stage, pick up that gold, hold it up, get a photograph taken, share it on their social media. They get the likes that they do. People think well of them. It makes them happier. You know, could it change their life? Maybe it has changed someone's lives, you know, personally. So I love awards from that perspective is that it makes people happy. That's just me being the, you know, empath <laughs> that I try to be. The second thing why awards matter is that when awards are done well, they set a blueprint for our industry. And it's good that you've asked this question because it's a very valid point that I wish I'd made earlier. When you have the right categories, when you have a category that is creative commerce, when you have a category that is best use of data, when you have a category that is branded entertainment, it, and they start awarding teams and work, you start thinking in that way to win as well, which makes our industry smarter and better. Versus, you know, as much as we love print and radio and everyone loves it because they're fun to create work, right? Because we are artists at heart as well. These are the categories that when award shows introduce them and promote them and make sure the entries are rewarded and awarded, it sets a new blueprint for industry. And that to me is why awards matter. And that's exciting about that. I love that point. And that, you use the word revelation. That to me is a revelation. It's an insight because I've often been on the fence when it comes to awards. I've been around people who've established amazing careers off scam work. And you know it's scam work. And scam work, for those who don't know, is where you just make up work and then put a logo on it. And maybe you get to run it in cheap media or in a billboard in the middle of nowhere for a hundred bucks, and then you can enter it in award shows. And my defense to awards, generally speaking, has been they set clear and high expectations in what can be a pretty subjective industry. Yes, we have numbers and evidence and proof, right? But the idea that award shows teach, train, and coach the industry, you know, I've probably had a little brain fart where I'm like, I know that's what's going on because you see different categories opening every now and then. I hadn't really thought about it in such a clear-headed way. So that to me is one of the revelations that I'll take from this particular interview. And I just want to point out for those insight nerds out there, sometimes insights or revelations, whatever you want to call them, they just give clear words to things you have either never thought about that you will from that point on not unthink, or they might just give really good clear language to stuff that you've meandered about, had a hunch about, and then you're like, oh no, it's exactly that. So I love that. I'll probably borrow it when I'm also defending awards in the future. It's an honor, Mark. It's an honor. Tahab, where are you most active on the internet if people would like to look you up? LinkedIn and Instagram. Thank you very much for joining me on Sweathead here today, Tahab. Thank you so much for this. This has been fun. We're all fans of yours, you know, myself included. I'm sure a lot of people listening are fans of yours as well. So it's been a pleasure, honestly. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Subscribe to our newsletter. Find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. 
And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy memberships, company training, or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.